You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, the Locals Weekly News podcast. We are recording on Wednesday the 1st of March and on this week's episode we're going to talk about Turkey resuming NATO talks with Sweden, but could Hungary put a spanner in the works? We'll discuss a controversial court ruling that has caused a lot of outrage in Sweden. We'll talk about the fallout after the Stockholm region's chief of police was found dead in his home last week. We'll look into why Sweden is still importing gas from Russia more than a year after the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. We'll listen to an interview with the Australian ambassador to Sweden. And finally, we ask, just how important is it to learn Swedish if you plan to live in Sweden? I'm Paul Omani and with me today in Stockholm is James Savage. And we are joined from Skåne by Richard Orange and Emma Lovegreen. Hello, everybody. And Hello. Hi. Are you all nicely rested up after your break from the podcast last week? Oh, yes. Yeah. Very nice. Good. Absolutely. Five days it. in Paris. Can't beat it. Oh, very nice. And Paris. meeting our lovely, lovely colleagues down there for the first time in ages, which was which was great. It was being it was like being in an episode of Talking France. And if you want to experience <laughs> it, I can highly recommend that you that you that you, that you download the podcast when it comes back next week. That was a really nice piece of advertising. <laughs> uh, did any of you see the the Northern Lights the other day that were visible all over Sweden, all the way down to Skåne? No, I was asleep. No. <laughs> totally missed it. I've seen them before though they are spectacular it's, it's, when they come back it's worth going out if you've got the opportunity I saw them for the first time did you? I did I saw them for the first time ever yeah and I have a tip for for anybody in Stockholm uh, it's to get away from the city lights I headed to a place called uh, Trintorp in Tyresa which is you're, when you're standing on the beach there you're facing north mm. and uh, yeah, I was, had a perfect view of them Spectacular. We've actually got an article on the site about uh, like what to know about the Northern Lights and sort of how to know when you can see them next, like with links to great apps and things like that, that will tell you exactly when there's a good chance of seeing the Northern Lights. So it's uh, gradually getting a bit less wintry in Sweden. And in fact, meteorologists are saying that spring has arrived in much of southern Sweden now, although not yet here in Stockholm. I think you've got spring in Skåne and in, in Gothenburg and other places quite far up the country. But one thing that definitely has arrived is the month of March. And we have an article on the site about some of the things that change in Sweden this month, which we'll link to in the notes. And that article includes things like how many links hunters are allowed to shoot and how alcohol prices are increasing this month. But it also focuses a bit on NATO, which we're going to give you some updates on now. 
We mentioned in the last episode that Turkey had signalled its willingness to reopen talks with Sweden. And next week, representatives from Turkey, Sweden and Finland are set to meet in Brussels. The outcome is uncertain and Turkish Foreign Minister Mevlut Cavusoglu continues to insist that Sweden has not yet met all of Turkey's demands. And as we discussed last week, it's not inconceivable that Turkey could ratify Finland's application while keeping Sweden on hold. So first of all, Richard, is it true that Sweden hasn't done what it said it would in the trilateral memorandum? I think it depends which side you talk to. I think the, the, the really tricky bits are what it committed to do in Sweden. So it committed to prevent the activities of the PKK, which is the, the Kurdish terror organisation. And, and what's tricky is it wasn't just members of the terror organisation, but also affiliated and inspired groups or networks, which is extremely mm. vague and could basically yeah. mean almost anyone who's who's friendly to the Kurdish cause. And so President Erdogan has, has used that to basically come up with this big list of people he says are, you know, linked to or inspired by the PKK and demand that Sweden extradites them. And then that's the other bit that's tricky is the extradition clause, because is that Sweden commits to handling extradition requests for people it suspects of terrorism and, quote, expeditiously and thoroughly taking account information, evidence and intelligence provided by Turkey. Next week, Sweden is going to bring in a new terror law, which makes taking part in a terror group a crime and aiding a terror group. And that it will criminalise a lot of people who nowadays Sweden wouldn't be able to extradite. So it could be that Turkey will see that as a sign that Sweden is making an effort and perhaps use that as a pretext to give Sweden the go-ahead. But I wouldn't bet right. on it. <laughs> and Turkey is not the only country left to approve Sweden and Finland's NATO applications. The Hungarian parliament is expected to convene next week to potentially vote on whether to let the two Nordic nations into the Defence Alliance. How do we expect the vote to go, Richard? Is it going to be plain sailing in Budapest or could there be choppy waters ahead there too? Well, I mean, it's already looking unlikely that the vote's even going to go ahead uh, next week because Viktor Orban, Hungary's Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Gergely Gulyas, he was saying on Saturday that, in fact, that while the debate will happen this week, the actual vote could be pushed forward to March the 21st. So it, it looks like um, it's quite up in the air. And the focus has been entirely on Turkey and Turkey not ratifying it. And people have kind of taken Hungary for granted. And I think that's now looking like it might be a bit complacent because last week, uh, Viktor Orban in a radio interview was saying, it was a classic, he was like, well, you know, you know, I would love Sweden to join NATO, but many of the MPs in my party, they have their doubts, you know. And, um, you know, and after the lies that Sweden has said that we are, you know, undermining democracy in Hungary, you know, it's difficult for us to give the country their backing. And that, for me, sounds terrifying. I mean, I think that looks like they're getting ready to create some trouble at the last minute and try and get some concessions from the European Union and from Sweden and get people to back off and stop criticising Hungary for undermining democracy. I think it's going to be trickier than people assumed over the last year. On Saturday, uh, Gulyas, the chief of staff, accused Sweden of slandering Hungary and making criticisms of its democracy that were unfounded, dishonest and unfair and saying that joining NATO means Hungarian soldiers could be sent to protect Sweden in the event of an attack. And if, if that's the case, then Hungary needed more respect and that there needs to be more talks between Sweden and Hungary before Hungary, Hungary's MPs will be able to back 
ratify Swedish membership. So it's it's not looking great, actually. It's looking like they've been keeping it quiet and then waiting for the last minute when they get maximum leverage and now they're putting their foot down. So I think it's not going to be smooth sailing at all. I don't know. Why is anybody surprised? I mean, this is this is Viktor Orban's Hungary. This is this is the big troublemaker in the EU. And why would they not make trouble for Sweden in a situation like this? It's for Orban. It's all about gaining leverage, just like it is for Erdogan. Okay, thanks for that roundup. And we'll be following this story closely on the site in the weeks to come. One major talking point this week came after a court of appeal overruled a lower court that had found a man guilty of raping a 10-year-old girl. The new ruling was controversial because it turned on a question of semantics, specifically the meaning of the word snippa, which is a word used mostly by children to describe the female genitals. The court said it wasn't clear whether the word described the external visible parts of the genitals or the internal parts, and therefore it wasn't possible to be sure from the girl's testimony that the man had penetrated her with a finger. And this has sparked outrage on social media. And I read in the newspaper this morning that the parliamentary ombudsman has already received 80 complaints about the ruling so i think that you know that we definitely haven't heard the last of this have you all been following this and what do you make of it so the word snippa is relatively modern it was launched like 10 20 years ago to as part of a campaign really because um, there wasn't a good children's word for the female genitals at the time mm. and Part of the reason why they came up with this word was to give girls the language to use to describe if they had been sexually abused. Yeah. So it's uh, interesting. It's maybe not the right word, but it's something that uh, some people are still confused about exactly what the word means. But if you if you zoom out, this is clearly a failure by the judicial system. Without necessarily saying that the court has made the wrong decision in the very narrow sense it might have done but there's no doubt that this girl was at the very least severely sexually Mm. assaulted um or possibly raped yeah and the idea that the fact that this man hasn't been convicted of anything at all is at some level has to be a a failure a failure of the judicial system now then you can look at well was it right for the court in the very narrow instance to say that this was not rape? I mean, I think that's, that's very questionable, clearly. If you look at the uh, the other evidence that this, that this girl submitted, it seems clear that, that she was saying that, that the man had inserted his finger into her. And at the very least, that should be a severe sexual assault. Then there's a question, well, was it the fault of the prosecutor for not giving the court f- some alternative charges that it could convict this guy of? Was it, you know, of severe sexual assault rather than rather than rape? I, I've read the ruling and the girl, um, like she also sort of showed with her hands and explained that he had sort of stuck a finger inside her. And the, the court actually, like the appeals court also, found the girl's story credible and they believed that what she said had in fact happened. It was just a question of literally this one word, what does it mean? Hmm. 
Yeah, so they ended up consulting the dictionary. Yeah. And I was listening to Sveriges, Sveriges Radio have a new podcast that they just launched the other day actually called Doggins Echo, where they look at one story in detail every morning. And they had um, their own resident linguist on talking about it. And she seemed to suggest that this is a case where the dictionary hasn't kept pace with society that anybody of a certain age, as you were talking about initially, Emma, that this was the word that was needed in the language for children in particular, and that children know what it means. And she said it means vagina. and But the dictionary doesn't have that definition. And that's what the court leaned on in the end. They turned to the dictionary and they said, well, you know, the dictionary doesn't back up the girl's story. Yeah, and it's... Like people are also pointing out that the only judge that that had a dis- dissenting opinion and thought that the man should actually be convicted it was a woman in her thirties, whereas the yeah. other judges mm. were all men in like their sixties or seventies or something like that. And of course, you don't want to draw too many conclusions from that. But I know a lot of people have been saying that um, there's a petition out now saying that courts need to be or the justice system in general need more training and how to sort of deal with sexual assault, especially when it comes to children. Just before we recorded last week's podcast, news came through that the Stockholm region's police chief, Mats Löving, had been found dead at his home in Norrköping just hours after a report was released that recommended the national police chief, Anders Thornberg, consider dismissing him over conflict of interest allegations in connection with an alleged romantic relationship with a colleague. And this is obviously a tragic story and the police have come in for serious criticism for their handling of the internal investigation. Why are the police being criticised, Emma? So they're being criticised for a few different reasons, really. First, that they launched an internal investigation at all, while there was also an ongoing criminal investigation into Mm. whether or not Lerbing was guilty of serious misconduct. Secondly, there's the choice of investigator, so Thunberg, who was one of the people being investigated, was also the one who appointed the investigator, and he additionally appointed someone who had already investigated and cleared Thunberg once before, back when uh, when Thunberg was head of the security police during the terror attack on Drottninggatan in 2015. And this latest investigation also found that Thunberg had done nothing wrong. And even if that's true, like critics are saying that you shouldn't have an investigation where the integrity of the investigator could be called into question. Mm. And it's more a question of principle than anything else. People are not necessarily yeah. suggesting that there was anything dodgy there. Thirdly, the police are being criticised as an employer, basically. That they should have done more to like, not necessarily protect living, but that even if you have an, an employee who's accused of misconduct even if you have an employee who you have to dismiss, ultimately, you still, kind of as an employer, have a responsibility to provide a sort of safety net for them. Like You shouldn't just abandon them. But instead, there was this public press conference where one person who led the inquiry basically declared that Lerving was not fit to be a manager and he should be fired, and Toombe was talking to the press about how Lerving had lied to him and so on. 
as far as I understand, even before talking to Loving himself. And then the criticism basically boils down to that's not the way to behave as an employer. No. And where is the criticism coming from? I mean, it's coming from quite a lot of directions. Uh, Loving's family have criticised the police. The prosecutor leading the criminal investigation have criticised them. I think the police union have criticised the way the, the investigation's conclusions were announced as well. The police authority themselves have reported themselves to the Work Environment Authority, which is kind of the standard procedure in these cases, to see whether or not they had actually provided a safe work environment for Loving. The Justice Minister, which is the person who's ultimately responsible for the police authority, he's been called to the Justice Committee in Parliament to answer questions about how the government handled the investigation, because there has been talk about how the government apparently pressured Toombay a bit to make sure that this whole thing got investigated speedily. And before Loving's death, the Justice Minister had given his full backing to Toombay, despite criticism from the Sweden Democrats in particular that the National Police Chief wasn't doing enough to tackle gang crime. Is the Justice Minister Gunnar Strömer going to revise his opinion now? And if so, what will be the political ramifications for him? So Strömer is in a bit of a tricky position because it has in a way been very convenient for him to have Thunberg in that role. Thunberg has been police chief longer than Strömer has been Justice Minister. He was appointed by the previous government, the Social Democrats, and his presence as police chief kind of means that a lot of the criticism that the police have been getting about gang crime tends to stick on Thunberg and and kind of avoid Strömer. Now, if he were to fire Thunberg, that criticism is going to need somewhere to land, and chances are that it's then going to land on Strömer instead. Plus, as you said, Strömer has backed Thunberg, so it would seem strange if he suddenly made a U-turn on that. But we'll see what happens. I mean, the other two options are that they let Thunberg stay on for another year until his current contract expires, or that he kind of gets asked a bit behind the scenes to, to resign on his own initiative. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll see how this goes. Thanks for that explanation, Emma. On to a different story now. Last week we spoke to the Ukrainian ambassador to mark the first anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion. And we talked quite a lot about how much Sweden has supported Ukraine. But one news item last week told an underreported story that seemed to catch a lot of people off guard. So a year to the day after the invasion, a ship docked at Nuneshamn outside Stockholm carrying Russian gas for distribution to customers in Sweden. James, were you surprised when you heard this story and why? Well, a little. Um, First of all, we don't usually see Sweden as a gas-dependent country. And secondly because Sweden has been at the vanguard of efforts to cut trade ties with Russia. Mm. To look at the first point, now this gas was bought by a Finnish energy company and distributed to Swedish industrial customers for use in steelmaking, among yep. other things. Now, So this wasn't ending up in um, in homes. It wasn't, wasn't domestic gas. Sweden doesn't use much gas for heating or cooking. But perhaps controversially, among the end users of the gas is SSAB, which is actually a state-owned Swedish steelmaker. So Russian gas being used by a Swedish state-owned company. But as for the second point, gas imports are not banned under sanctions. 
So it's, it's important to note that this is not illegal. In fact, the importer Gassum, this Finnish company, says that it is bound by long-term contracts to buy the gas. So it really couldn't get out of out of its purchases. In a sense, it, it's not surprising. Though, you know, there, there are many of these deals being done around Europe and gas is still being imported into Europe. Somewhere between 3 and 10% of the gas being used in Europe today is still Russian gas. And do we know how much gas Sweden has imported since February last year? According to Greenpeace, which has done some research on this, almost exactly 103,000 cubic metres of gas has been imported since the invasion, all coming on ships into Sweden. Um, And that's worth about 1.7 billion Swedish kroner. So, you know, in the grand scheme of Sweden's energy use, not a massive amount, but still not microscopic. There has been a significant amount of gas, more than just this shipment. Yeah. So when the current government was in opposition, they pushed hard for all imports of Russian fossil fuels to be halted. Why aren't they stopping this? Because they can't. Sanctions are decided at the EU level. So there's not much the Swedes on their own can do about it. And for the moment, gas is not covered by sanctions. Now, lots of European companies have made significant efforts to get their gas usage down, most most prominently um, Germany. Sweden and their trade minister, Johan Forschel, um, is arguing that gas should be covered by sanctions. And Forschel says he's pushing that case within the EU. And already EU nations have ended imports of Russian oil brought in by sea and have just instituted a ban on refined oil products, which came in last month. But so far, there is no ban on gas. Uh, and we'll see if that, if, if that comes in the future. But clearly, there are other countries in Europe that are much more reliant on Russian gas than Sweden, even if less so than before, and, and, and who might want to stop that from happening. Okay, great. Thanks for that roundup. And all of this does seem to highlight how hard the scramble to replace Russian energy sources has been. I saw that Reuters had a report recently showing that the Baltic states had also imported a lot of liquefied gas from Russia last year, despite being the first countries in Europe to hold imports of natural gas in April last year. So yeah, it's it's a complex issue. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Next, we are going to listen to an interview with Australia's ambassador to Sweden, Bernard Philip. We had a chat recently about Swedish-Australian relations, and he estimated that there are around 7,000 Australians in Sweden. And we'll join the conversation at a point where he talks about some visible signs of Australia making its mark in Sweden. And I possibly wrongly suggested that flat whites really come from New Zealand and I should note that there was a New Zealander in the room too, so it was just a bit of fun before anyone attacks me over it. Okay, let's listen. 
if you go into cafes here, and I've really noticed the change even in the last three years, you'll see flat white uh, on the menu. Yes. And um, I think we sort of compete with the New Zealand over responsibility for the flat white, but, um, but I'll certainly, as Australian ambassador, claim it as one of ours. You do also see, um, and again, comes back to the weather, quite a lot of Australian footwear here in Stockholm. So in particular, Iron Williams boots and Blundstones. There are Blundstones everywhere. Yeah, so I mean, there might be a bit of a divide between the sort of Iron Williams and more Östermalm and Blundstones are Södermalm perhaps. I don't want to cause too much of a dispute here, but I think New Zealand has won the communications battle over flat white. Aha, okay. Radio. <laughs> well, let's, we'll come back to Pavlova then uh, in okay. a little while. Yeah. Czech Republic, maybe. <laughs> uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, bilateral relations between Australia and Sweden? We have a, a very strong relationship uh, with Sweden. It does go back uh, quite a long way, uh, which I think um, is not appreciated as much uh, as it could be, in that there was a Swede, Daniel Salander, mm-hmm. uh, from Pitio, who was on board the Endeavour voyage in the late uh, 1760s, then um, arriving in Austra- what's now Australia in 1770. So he was the first, I think, European-trained scientist to okay. ever visit Australia and played a, a really critical role uh, in the Endeavour mission in terms of discovery for Europeans of, of the botanical wonders uh, of Australia. So in that sense, the, the connection does go back quite a way. Swedes have been coming to Australia f- to do business uh, for a long time. Ericsson yeah. has been present there since, uh, since 1890. And I think uh, we have enjoyed really getting to know each other uh, through the 20th century. We're coming up to the 50th anniversary of ABBA's famous uh, tour of Australia in, in 1977. And I mean, I know growing up in the, the 1980s, I still have very vivid memories of the, the great Swedish players coming down about this time of year to play some tremendous tennis during the height of the Australian summer. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of the relationship today, uh, certainly trade and investment ties are a very important mm. part of our connection with, with Sweden and the Nordics. We benefit enormously from the capabilities and the technologies that Swedish companies uh, bring to Australia, and we're keen to attract more investment. We're negotiating a free trade agreement between Australia and the European Union, yeah. and we hope that that will uh, really promote stronger trade ties. There are Australian companies that um, are active in Sweden, uh, whether it's um, building the Mall of Scandinavia or the mm. Arlanda Express or the largest onshore wind farm in northern Sweden. Um, Australian companies have seen opportunities here. I suppose the areas that I'd highlight going forward would be, would be really around the green transition. Yeah. I mean, Sweden is leading the world in terms of what they're doing through companies like Northvolt and mm. SSAB in really building new industries around fossil-free steel and green batteries. And given that Australia also has a large minerals endowment, given that we have enormous potential for renewable energy, particularly solar, we think that we can learn from some of Sweden's experience mm. and, and really help drive emissions reductions, not only for Australia, but for our trading yeah. partners as well. The final area I'd mention is um, engagement between uh, the Sami people and Indigenous Australians. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an area that has strengthened in recent years and, and we see really good opportunities to promote closer ties between Indigenous Australians and, and uh, the Sami people, particularly in, in areas where we all need to learn from the, the practices of Indigenous peoples, particularly mm-hmm. around environmental stewardship. So that is a, an area of the relationship with a lot of potential. If we can move on a little bit to your own personal experiences of uh, Sweden, was was there anything in particular that surprised you when you moved here? Uh, one thing that 
I think surprised me was the patriotism in Sweden. It's not necessarily a country you associated with sort of the stronger forms of, of nationalism. And I don't think uh, that's the, the form of patriotism they have here. It is, is more of a perhaps quieter form. Mm. Um, but it's, it's just something that, that strikes you around different parts of the country. You sort of see it in the Swedish flags um, that yeah. are, again, um, out in the countryside or on boats in the, in the Stockholm archipelago. And I think it just does reflect a strong sense of pride in, in Sweden's language and history and culture and also a, a national cohesion. Yeah, what's the best thing about living in Sweden, do you think? Well, I'm sorry to bring it back to the weather, but I, I, think, uh, I, I think it really is just the sense of relief that you get um, as the days start and get a bit, to get a bit longer. And then just the exuberance of, of summer. Um, I mean, I think there are more smiling faces around. And uh, having been through now, or nearly through four winters, um, you can kind of uh, sense why that exuberance is there. I suppose a follow-on um, benefit perhaps for my family is that uh, we will never really complain about cold weather in Canberra, Australia's capital again. Yeah. I mean, we're seasoned Arctic people now, I think, as regards the weather. So back in Australia, um, we're going to be well-equipped. That was Australia's Ambassador Bernard Phillip, and we will have more from that interview in an article on the site in the coming days. On to a language issue now, and you may well have noticed that often staff in cafes and restaurants will only take orders in English. A reader of the newspaper Svenska Dagbladet was sufficiently annoyed by this phenomenon to write to the paper's etiquette columnist Sophia Larsson recently and ask if English is now the norm in Stockholm. We're going to talk to our panellists in a few minutes about the importance of speaking Swedish, but first I caught up with Sophia to see how she responded to that reader's query. Let's listen to what she had to say. Um, Actually, this was one of the hardest questions for me to answer when I got it to my column, because sometimes the answer is so easy, but there's a lot of factors that you have to weigh in here, and not all people are the same. For example, I had a colleague, uh, and she seemed to be like an outgoing social person, but she had a lot of issues, like if you were supposed to meet her uh, outside a restaurant, she made sure that she wasn't the first to go there because she got super nervous. And I also know that she had a lot of issues with speaking English. So for, for her, this would be an actual issue. So we have to always like remember that we are different and different people have different needs. So just like be a little bit, you know, kind to each other. You touch on this in the column that maybe the staff member should make the first move and communicate that they don't speak Swedish. I mean, that that is a nice thing to do. So you don't ramble, blah, 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 in, in Swedish. And then after that, they say like, well, I only speak English, so I didn't understand a word of what you were saying. Like, yeah. They should do a, a little nice and courteous interruption, like within the first couple of words. So do you understand why some people find it annoying? Well, I mean, there's 
at least two sides to everything. And uh, is it reasonable that you will be able to make yourself understood and understand other people in your own language in the uh, in the country that you live in? <laughs> yes, uh, but is English also a very universal language that most people know of? Suddenly I feel like I... <laughs> <laughs> are bad at English and uh, that's a bit funny the thing is that you don't want to be caught off guard I think mm. uh, I mean before we did this interview you eased me in a little bit and talked about like this topics that I was familiar like where I grew up and stuff and yeah. I, I mean that is the way to do it like don't surprise people and 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 I mean there are places that you might go like if you go to a pub that's called the crazy kangaroo then then you understand that oh I might have to talk English to the bartender there yeah, probably. Uh, <laughs> but there are other places where you might be surprised and there are also different like part of uh, customer groups that it could be uh, an old Swedish person mm-hmm. or it could be a newly arrived person from a area of the world that where it's just not interesting to learn language it uh, has a cultural and like uh, geographic uh, situation where English is not uh, viewed as as it is here in in Sweden so to not exclude people I think that you always have to have a backup you could always have someone you can refer to for those people who are not confident uh, with speaking English it's also because we are talking about lots about cafes restaurants Mm. and shops like where service is important and there can be people who are not very accommodating (laughs) even though you speak the same language I think when those people uh, like to top it off speak English then you can perceive it as them being like a bit snotty you know Mm. But there can also be people that they could speak like a language that has been dead for thousands of years and you would still be like, wow, this person is so nice. I feel so welcome here. So it has a lot to do about like the the energy that you put in behind the words. And, And people, they want to usually understand each other and they find a way to communicate. Kate. And usually you don't talk about quantum physics in, in shops and, and restaurants. So, <laughs> yeah, I think that you shouldn't like overestimate how big this problem is. Do you think that maybe people working in cafes and restaurants should learn the basics to be able to communicate with customers in Swedish? I mean, that is absolutely welcome for sure. Yeah. And when I got this uh, question uh, in the column that I'm writing, then the the person who um, asked if it was a good idea that people have a little pin or something that shows what language they are speaking. And that's very proactive. And proactive, I think, is good in this situation. Do you personally find it annoying if you place an order for a coffee, for example, and the person replies that they don't speak Swedish and can you can you ask again in English? No, not really. I'm I'm usually happy to speak English. I think it's uh, fun. But <laughs> like I said before, right now I feel like I'm much worse <laughs> in my English than I'm usually I'm I'm speaking Swinglish or something. I guess that's because I, I speak about subjects that I don't speak about in everyday life. So I have to think more and then it doesn't flow. But I am confident 
to to order a coffee in English for sure. Yeah, but your but your English is is really good, and I understand that you know you you're just coming into this situation having maybe not spoken English for a while. But isn't this the point that you know your English is excellent, and most Swedes' English is excellent, and that's why this situation can happen. Yes, and that kind of goes back to what you were saying that maybe we shouldn't overestimate the problem, right? Exactly, and I I think uh, after the. I mean, everyone has heard about how hard it is to find staff for these uh, kind of areas, like mm. restaurants, and they can't recruit people who know perfect Swedish. It's no. it's also like a, a Euro thing, like a lot of uh, Spanish people or uh, Portuguese people will come here, and, and yeah. it's just a new situation. That was Sofia Larsson, who, apart from writing for Svenska Dagbladet, is also the author of a book on modern etiquette. And we heard Sofia say there that while the prevalence of English might be irritating for some people, it's also not a massive deal as long as everyone can understand each other. Is that a fair point? Yeah, I mean, in a sense. I think we've got to remember, though, that there's a as as Sophia was talking about, there is a huge span of people in Sweden and they have different relationships to English. Now, I I know a lot of people who find speaking English difficult. We think that all Swedes speak great English and frankly, most of them do. But even some of those people who speak decent enough English don't feel that comfortable speaking it and find it inhibiting and it makes them insecure. So I think, you know, if you're going around Stockholm um, or Sweden and you're working in in a public facing job and you're speaking English to people, don't take for granted that they are going to feel comfortable speaking to in English because a lot of people, even if they will try and they will try and hide their embarrassment or discomfort, actually don't find it that comfortable. What I don't understand is why, like, if you're not comfortable speaking English, then don't speak English. Why can't just one person speak English and the other person speak Swedish and you might not understand each other completely? You can use hand gestures and you'll be able to tell from each other's tone whether you're being friendly or not. And it'll be a bit awkward, but just let it be awkward. What slightly gets me in some of these situations, when I'm sitting there with a bunch of Swedish people, we're all talking Swedish, and then you're asked to order in English, is when there's no effort on the part of the waiter, I think, to speak any kind of Swedish. I think think a little bit of Swedish goes a long way in those kind of situations. And, you know, an announcement, look, I'm I'm still learning Swedish, but, you know, a hey and a tack and, and trying to understand the basics of... The basics of menu Swedish doesn't take very long. I've sometimes been spoken to in English by Swedish staff at restaurants in Stockholm. I don't know if that's because I have a southern Swedish accent or if it's just that they're so used to dealing with tourists that their brain sometimes just switches. I was reading an interview a few days ago with a Ukrainian woman who moved here sometime early last year and she was working in a hotel on the outskirts of Stockholm. And she said that the working language there at the hotel is English. And that kind of surprised me, you know, because you think of English being the working language for tech companies, but maybe that's seeping more into the service industry as well. I think very much so, because, you know, it's it's very clear that the service uh, sector in Sweden is 
in desperate need of staff. It's very, very hard to find um, enough people to to to, to staff um, hotels and restaurants and all the other businesses that in, in, in the service sector. So they need to find people from all around the world. And as we're saying, if people have just, just literally just arrived in Sweden, there's no hope of them being able to communicate with each other in Swedish. So so yes, it, it, the working language in these places has to be English. I think that there's, there's one more aspect to all of this for me, which is... Um that sort of more multilingual Sweden where a lot of people speak English and English is very prevalent in restaurants and also at other places like workplaces and universities and so on. Like, in a way, it makes Sweden more open because it's easier to come here as an English-speaking immigrant and just get by. In another way, it makes it more closed to a lot of people because not everybody around the world speaks English. Does the expectation almost become that if you move to Sweden and you don't speak English, you're going to end up having to learn two languages, both Swedish and English, to be able to exist in Swedish society? That's a really big... I mean, we know quite a few of the sort of Ensam Commander people, you know, the Afghans who came in 2015. And, you know, they've managed to get, you know, absolutely perfect Swedish, but but they don't speak English. You know, there's a lot of immigrants who the effort of learning fluent Swedish crowds out learning English. It can be it can be very excluding, but there's still a lot of older Swedes, you know, native-born Swedes who find find English very difficult as well. How important do you think it is to learn Swedish if you live in Sweden? I mean, has this transformation changed the equation in any way? I, I think it really depends on on what your plans are for Sweden. I mean, if you're coming here to work for three years at Spotify as part of a kind of international career. I think you could get by, have a perfectly nice time here only speaking English. And I don't think your experience would be much worse if you didn't get to grips with Swedish. And the same with if you're like a teacher at a university or a lecturer at university or something like that. But I think if you want to kind of get below the surface and feel comfortable in the society, I think it's really important to learn Swedish. I mean, it's really difficult for a lot of people to learn Swedish. Also, like, for example, if you work as a... I don't know, if you work as a doctoral student at university, you've got quite a busy schedule, so it's hard to fit in Swedish lessons on the side. You also work in an international environment, so mm. you don't get a lot of opportunity to practice. I mean, one thing I one thing I wish I'd, I kind of wish I'd done, and I would recommend to people who come here as a kind of love refugee, and they're thinking, well, I'm going to settle here, I'm going to have a family here, I'm going to be here for a decade... I really, the people I know who've done these intensive Swedish courses at the big universities where you take a year out, take a year of your life where you don't work and you just hammer it. I think that, I think there's a real advantage to doing that because then when you finish that and you step into society, you've already got over the threshold where you can speak Mm. to people and they won't switch back to English. One of the things that a lot of linguists talk about in this context is the the question of domain loss, where languages like Swedish, you know, basically non-English languages, stop being used in certain environments. I mean, we've already seen it to a large extent in, in academia, uh, in universities, in, particularly in many, in many sort of scientific subjects. Swedish is barely used. Academic papers are hardly ever written in languages like Swedish or, frankly, in most other non-English languages. Mm. And, you know, there's a concern among some, among some linguists, among, I guess, some people who, for whom pr- preserving linguistic diversity is important, 
that, that this is going to spread and going to move into in, 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 into more areas. And, you know, you can understand their concern because obviously a language is a bearer of culture. It's a bearer of tradition. It's a bearer of of, of, of people's, also of individuals' personalities. If you are, if, if, if something is your native language, you, you perhaps feel um, that you can express yourself much more fluently in it. And I think that that's something for us, for those of us who come in from other countries and speak English in, Swe- in Swedish society, to at least bear in mind that there are sensitivities around this that aren't just about whether people understand you. It's also about a desire to protect the sort of culture and the language that, that bears it. For anyone who wants uh, more good tips on learning Swedish, by the way, I recommend listening to our episode from April 9th last year, where we had Swedish teacher Sophie Tegsveden Devoe in the studio. And we'll link to that episode in the notes if you want to find it quickly. So that's all for today. Thanks, as always, to our members whose support is what makes this podcast happen. If you like the podcast and you have a moment, please help us get the word out by leaving a review or rating it or sharing it with people you think might enjoy it. And do make sure to follow the podcast in your app so you get new episodes delivered as soon as they go live. Our panellists today were James Savage, Emma Lovegrain and Richard Orange. Our sound engineer is Reese Edwards. I'm Paul Amani and we'll be back again next Saturday. Until then, take care. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.